0: I was standing in my garage, putting various things in my car that my children had decided to pack up and force me to take to the Goodwill. <laughs> and as I was going through their boxes and recalling the memories associated with those various things, my mom stood beside me. She was visiting for a short five minutes or so. She then looked at me and nonchalantly said, you know, women are filled with memory banks. I was so struck by the imagery of that and the reality of it. There was something so profoundly resonant in what she said, which she said just matter of factly. I was distracted for the rest of the day. I could not shake the visual of the corners of my body being filled up with all of the experiences I had, the things I had seen, the stories I had been told, all of the things I remembered. Filling up all those little places of my body, like safety deposit boxes, (laughs) filled with all these treasures. Let's rewind back about five years to me, sitting in a library cubicle at the university where I was completing my master's degree in vocal performance. I was climbing into my second year of studies in this graduate program. And over the summer, I had firmly decided the theme of my final master's recital. In fact, I had decided it the last day of classes the year before, during my first year. And I was so fiercely determined by this particular subject matter that it drove me to prepare this recital in such a way that I really hadn't done since preparing to compete for Miss America several years before. I had a driving need to discover the stories of women in music. Specifically, I was trying to find female composers or female poets, female lyricists, devising music that reflected the female experience as I knew it, not as it was perceived by the greater world or by a flood of different societal portrayals based on generalizations. No, 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 no. I wanted to find exactly what I knew to be true as a woman working hard might i add in the entertainment industry as a mother trying to balance a career and motherhood and everything that went along with being that and a partner to my husband as a wife as a woman of faith as a friend as someone who deeply valued my female friendships i wanted to see those things And the duality of the complicated and natural realities of being a woman reflected in the music I presented as an artist and interpreter of the human experience. I obsessively searched through the various chronicles of the library's documents and books and music scores, along with a vast historical databases I could find online, through the various modern ways that stories about women and of women and for women were organized at my fingertips but I distinctly remember sitting back in my chair in exasperation and asking out loud, where are all the women? Welcome to the Virtuosa Society podcast, where I'll be diving into remarkable secret and hidden in plain sight stories of collaborations that were born from various shared struggles between female creatives. We're going to unlock the memory banks of women to discover the experiences that resonate most with womanhood, beyond the missing pages in history books, to the nuanced truths and realities and and revelations that have unlocked true creativity in women, all in an effort to elevate the future for women carving out artistic, creative, non-linear lives. I'm Katie Harmon, your host. I'm insatiably curious, a lifelong seeker and a storyteller, primarily through song as a professional performer for more than half of my life now. <laughs> I also happen to be a former Miss America and a women's healthcare advocate, both foundational experiences from which I built my collection of and deep respect for the stories of women, by women, and for women. Let's unlock today's story, shall we? The year is 1625. It's a cool, bright February night, and I want you to imagine you're drawn by carriage down a wide tree-lined avenue with the city gates of metropolitan Florence, Italy growing hazier in the distance behind you. Your carriage passes the threshold of a grand estate perched atop a hill between the halves of a vast courtyard to a set of sprawling steps you sweep through the arched entrance of Villa del Poggio Imperale, the Villa of the Imperial Hill, and you find yourself gazing up at walls filled with prestigious artwork and detailed frescoes. As your eyes travel along the canvases, sculpture, and brushstrokes, you are struck by a single detail. All of the artwork depicts scenes of women. In fact, these are the faces, bodies, and stories of exemplary heroines from history, from the Bible, hagiography, which were politically motivated biographies written to idealize saints at that time, as well as the family lineage and lore of a particularly powerful cadre of noble women, the Medici princesses. Signs of what was once the abandoned site of the murder of Isabella di Medici at the hand of her abusive husband have been meticulously and expensively replaced with a decidedly gynocentric air of authority. You are in the newly restored private retreat of Maria Magdalena de Austria, Grand Duchess Consort of Tuscany, now co-regent with her mother-in-law, Medici matriarch Christine de Lorraine. It was a woman's court in a man's world and they were the beating heart. This particular night, nobility and invited guests were ushered onto a balcony with sweeping views of the grounds. For 75 minutes, they bore witness to a lavish spectacle where no expense was spared, part opera, part ballet, and pure political theater. The tale is of the sorceress Alcina, who places a spell on the knight Ruggiero along with a host of other male companions, entrapping them in a garden of delights on her island. Oddly enough, they seem to enjoy the experience, until the benevolent warrior princess Melissa magically transforms into an older man, the African warrior Atlante. And she sneaks onto the island to awaken Ruggiero from a stupor strongly encouraging him to return to battle and to his duty to his wife, Rodamante, to continue their family lineage. Just as they are about to ride off into the sunset, an eerie song stops them, emanating from the plants in Alcina's garden, who were once the discarded lovers of the sorceress, yikes. They help the pair escape. When Alcina learns that Ruggiero has left the island, she seeks him out again, And through tears demands that he return to acknowledge her pain at the dismissal of chivalry after having made love to her the audacity when he ignores her she becomes distraught with sorrow and then enraged so enraged that she transforms into a dragon engulfing her entire island in fire real fire, mind you, not curtains waving about to look like fire, (laughs) and rides through the fire offstage. Then the story takes an even more interesting turn when Melissa, transformed back into a woman, by the way, returns to the charred remains of Alcina's island to rescue the plants, aka the former lovers of Alcina, by turning them back into men. After a set of graceful dances, the scenery parted to reveal an extraordinary balletto a cavallo where 24 horsemen performed a horseback ballet, framing the final scene where Melissa triumphantly rode a cart drawn by centaurs among the horses and riders. End scene. Exciting, right? <laughs> Hundreds of workers had been employed to bring La Liberazione di Ruggiero dal Sola d'Alcina, or the liberation of Roger from the island of Alcina, to life for Maria Magdalena's guests, including singers, instrumentalists, painters, architects, seamstresses, carpenters, masons, and many, many more, as was typical for the court spectacles of the day, especially in Florence. Mind you, this was the epicenter of the Italian Renaissance, known the world over for profound advancements in painting, architecture, sculpture, literature, music, philosophy, science, technology, and exploration. It was a period of prolific collaboration between artists, thinkers, and creators. But there is something very atypical about one particular member of the Medici staff, as well as for the time period at large, The entire score for La Liberazione was written by a woman, specifically 36-year-old Francesca Caccini, who served as La Musica, the chief musical director for the Medici Famiglia. She was the darling of the woman's court and an integral cog in the political wheel of the Medici princesses. Francesca was personally appointed to the position by Christine de Lorraine in 1607 Having not only been in the right place at the right time for this kind of unprecedented appointment, but also possessing exceptional skill and intelligence, setting her apart from her contemporaries, male or female. Although Francesca's father, Giulio Caccini, was once the second highest paid composer and musician on staff for the Medicis, nepotism benefits were only reserved for the nobility, Francesca earned her position through the early prowess she showed for singing and composition, (laughs) as well as Latin, rhetoric, poetics, geometry, astrology, philosophy, contemporary languages, humanistic studies, and Greek. Wow. By the time she was 13, she was appearing in traveling productions of her father's work. While in Paris, after hearing her sing, French King Henry IV declared her to be the best singer and tried to snap her up for the French court. But her father couldn't let his prized pupil be traded to the French. Ah! So Francesca found herself back in Florence. But her time in France proved to be auspicious as it broadened her vast education to include how to survive the high politics and sexual intrigue of the elite families for whom she would most likely work. In other words, keep your standards high and your pen at the ready. As La Musica for the Medici, she blossomed from star performer to a busy teacher with a full roster of successful singer students. Even collaborating with Michelangelo Buenorotti, the great nephew of that Michelangelo, to create new material for her singers from his poetry. Pretty cool. And her compositions exponentially increased creating new musical works at dizzyingly fast output speeds for court entertainment, the church, and most especially music that would celebrate and aid the proliferation of Medici political power at the behest of her cunning patrons. Respected and praised, Francesca was Christine de Lorraine and Maria Magdalena's greatest asset and proved to be their most important collaborator, on this especially important night of theater. Why was this particular convergence of three women remarkable? Well, let's break it down this way. The Medicis came to power as banking magnets, and through the shrewd, sometimes shady, and frequently violent dealings of its patriarchal lineage became a political dynasty in Tuscany between 1434 and 1737. After Christine de Lorraine was widowed by the death of the Grand Duke of Tuscany, Ferdinando I, in 1609, she used her position as regent to secure the safety of the Medici princesses through the arrangement of marriages and safe placement of the unmarried women of the courts in convents, which she personally oversaw the building and management of. Her keen desire to secure the safety of women of the court extended to women of all social ranks too as they were permitted to appeal to her generosity when the circumstances were desperate, or as Christine saw it, when the cause of the desperation was at the hand of the institution she was working so hard to preserve. Author Suzanne Cusick expressed that, quote, Christine exercised absolute sovereignty over the sex gender system of Tuscany's elite, as if she were not so much a mother and guardian as head of a tribe. Everything she did was for the survival of the Medici's superiority in politics and in art. While Christine was considered elegant and reserved, her Austrian-born daughter-in-law, Maria Magdalena d'Austria, was a force of nature, quite literally. She was described as, quote, an enthusiastic dancer, horsewoman, and huntress, with claimed court biographer Cristoforo Brancini claiming, quote, So accustomed her white hand to bend the bow and aim arrows and balls of lead in hunting that few people could equal her. She looked at birds and few or none escaped her hands. She stared at stags and boar and infallibly striking them in the middle of the forehead with her bow, she killed them. Despite the right breast on her chest and a husband at her side, no one could deny that she seemed a new Amazon in Tuscany. (laughs) I found it particularly hilarious that the court made special note of Magdalena being humorally hot, a.k.a. she sweat a lot, which circulated rumors that she wouldn't be able to have children. What did she ever prove them wrong by birthing eight children in her first 10 years to Grand Duke Cosimo II, five boys and three girls? Maria Magdalena was an especially attentive and exacting patron of the arts. Thus, the extensive renovation of her private villa and the ornate art depicting female empowerment on the ceilings and the walls. Cusick goes on to say this about Magdalena. Quote, by rehabilitating the palace of Isabella de' Medici in the way that she did, Magdalena had linked the memory of the most intellectually ambitious and sexually dangerous to the unquestionable virtue of the exceptional, excessive women painted on the villa's ceilings. She thus claimed for herself and future generations of princesses an unlikely melding of female Medician ambition, sexual agency, and political virtue. La Liberazione would then be performed in a space that Magdalena had infused with an almost defiant affirmation of womanly power, the space in which she meant her personification of Medici power to be understood. Although she didn't have much of a choice, it was kismet that Francesca proved to be the ideal composer for Magdalena's aspirations for La Liberazione not only because of her exemplary skill and service to the Medicis, but also her deft management of sexism in court among her peers. In 1621, just a few years before La Liberazione, Francesca publicly called out womanizing court poet Andrea Salvadori for seducing her young singers. A witness from the court recounted, quote, Francesca Caccini, a woman as fierce and restless as she was capable in singing and acting, Could not abide this behavior and began to expose and talk about him, first in passing and behind his back, and then openly and to his face, revealing his intentions and designs and the origins of his favoritism. (laughs) It's no surprise then that singers stopped working with him and that he published a scathing poem in response titled, Women Musicians Speak from Hell. (laughs) Author Anna Beer said, Quote, Caccini's ability to hang on to the Medici ball over many years relied on her ability to understand and manipulate to her own advantage the gender politics of the Medici court, as she had done in dealing so successfully with Salvadori. (laughs) In overlapping the ambitions, talents, and ideals of these three remarkable Florentine women, It isn't any wonder then that La Liberazione was a political and musical triumph. The choice of story, the tale of two magically powerful women whose complicated connection was the distribution of power and not actually the man who was exchanged, was deliberate, as was Francesca's singularly masterful interplay between dramatic recitative and playful nods like using trombones to denote the enchanted plants that were Alcina's former lovers. Take a listen. Her score had such a profound effect on the audience that it is recorded that they physically moved their bodies from their seats and their minds from their fears because of the music. Their fears, you wonder? What were those fears? The fear of those, primarily men, who worried what would happen to the House of Medici if they were trapped in the dynamics of the women's court of Christine de Lorraine and Maria Magdalena's regency. The last vocal scene of La Liberazione was the grand punctuation mark on a statement shared by all three women, the radical and critical claim that men and women are fundamentally equal. In essence, the liberation of Ruggiero affirmed the capacity of commanding women to collaborate in the creation of accelerating beneficial, liberating change to paraphrase Suzanne Cusick. Personally, I am grateful that the memory banks of these fascinating women led them to carefully craft a moment where time and trouble was temporarily suspended, which is after all, one of the major tenets of theater to be a mirror of the human experience, but also an escape for the purpose of evaluating how to do and be better in our finite time of contribution to the world. La Liberazione is one of very few surviving printed works from that time period, and sadly, one of a handful of the hundreds of pieces written by Francesca Caccini. So many of them were lost to history. While it's highly debated whether La Liberazione can be considered the first opera written by a woman, Francesca is widely hailed as having contributed heavily to the birth of opera nearly a decade after her lifetime. I was drawn like a moth to a flame to the remarkable story of Francesca Christine, and Magdalena, because I have a bit of experience when it comes to princesses and internal politics. (laughs) As I alluded to in my intro, yep, I once wore the Miss America crown, in 2002 to be exact. I was the 76th young woman to be awarded the title and the honor at a particularly fraught time in American history, just days after 9-11. I'll share more about that singular pageant experience in a future episode. In fact, stay tuned for that. For me, connecting the dots between the collaborative Medici women's court and my experience actually lay in the 20 plus years I've spent as a former Miss America. Fans like to call us forevers rather than formers, which I happily accept. (laughs) More specifically, I can point to a particularly poignant convergence with my fellow Miss America sisters as a memory I've banked as a treasure. Unlike the Medicis, our sisterhood doesn't have the benefit of close proximity. In fact, we're scattered all over the U.S. and the world. Therefore, for years, we'd only see each other once a year if and when we returned to the pageant to bear witness to the crowning of the new Miss America to join our ranks. But similarly, we span widely in age, with our oldest Miss America BB shop, Miss America 1948, clocking in at 92 years young. And our youngest being our current Miss America, 2003, Grace Stanke, at 20 years old. In 2015, Laura Kepler, Miss America 2012, had the brilliant idea to host a reunion at her home in Malibu, California. On a breezy weekend in January, 23 of us descended upon the Cali coast with nary a sequin gown in sight. In fact, we relished the opportunity to simply sit in a room together without any scheduled pageant appearances to rule our conversations. There was no objective other than to enjoy each other's company. The company of a diverse group of women whose major commonality is a profoundly unusual shared experience born from pop culture's 100 year old quest to crown America's ideal woman. Our only agenda was to talk with one another, to get to know one another, by sharing our stories told from our own lips, not those of pageant officials, press clippings or documentaries, or even the lore spun by the most devoted fan. (laughs) But a little order was definitely necessary. As you can imagine, we can talk. (laughs) We were trained to talk confidently, talk well, and talk often as one of the primary tenets of the job of Miss America. Just imagine the symphony of sound when you fill a room with Miss Americas. Laura had the genius idea of passing her crown around to denote the speaker of the moment. Not only was this a visually effective way to keep us on track, but profoundly meaningful. Watching each of us pass and share the crown once more just as we had done the night we crowned our successor and turned a leaf to former. This time, though, we were passing the crown without spectacle and without competition. Lee Merryweather, Miss America 1955, and TV's original Catwoman got the conversation started by detailing a few memories of her year that she felt comfortable sharing among the only women who could truly empathize. And then, one after another, we each shared revelations and memories. We bounced from laughter to tears to deep, deep recognition of the strength and fragility we each possessed. I sat down with Laura recently to reminisce about that reunion in 2015 and also to draw some really interesting parallels between our experience and that of the Medici princesses. Take a listen. I want to hear your thoughts about that. What drove you to wanting to have that reunion in the first place and to pass the crown around and, and to do what you did. I think I viewed the
1: value of the experience in the experience of the other women that one performed. Mm -hmm. And there was a, there is always probably unfortunately going to be a lot of turmoil within the organization and the
0: formers
1: and we need to get into that. But I sort of had this like (laughs) idea where I could get involved in the organization or I could spend my energy in the women that I shared this experience with. And I don't really know why I, wanted to have the reunion. I just sort of like was on this mission. I had the idea and I was like, I just want to make it happen. And I think also I was trying to sort through the experience on my own. I was, you know, newly out in the world. <laughs> I was newly released out into the wild after. <laughs> after the so true. Um, maybe it was like a year. And it had to be like a couple years after mm-hmm. two or three. Afterwards. And, um, yeah. And so I, I, just wanted to gather everyone. And I think I just saw the value in all of us and all of us being together. And that's where I continue to hold my value is within the women that have experienced this, yes. um, because it's such a unique experience and it's so much deeper than what may meet the eye and that was what I really wanted to experience and get to. Mm-hmm. And I think it translated in, in, the, in the way of this reunion. And it was really
0: wonderful. You know, we never meant for it to be a statement, but it's so interesting too how it became that the the conversations that people had about it, when, you know, we were casually posting on Facebook at that time, or whatever it was, and Hey, we're here meeting together. We're we're having this this wonderful reunion, and uh, that was a way for us to to make a statement about sisterhood, about the true nature and the depth of sisterhood beyond meeting at the pageant with our makeup on every year. <laughs> this was this was something more. This was something for us. What kind of power lies? in the experience when women collaborate? I think about the
1: power differentials in the world and I find it so ironic because women literally give life and grow (laughs) life. And I often wonder (laughs) if we experience this inequality because if Women were truly to come together, Mm -hmm. the power that we hold when we are together is too much. Mm. And and it's something that we've never experienced, but I know we will. And the power that we held, and I don't say power in like um, a dominating way. I say power in like strength and source and yes creativity mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. options expanded to options to different mm-hmm. options to different ways of living mm-hmm. and understanding and loving and i think the reason yes. that we are so powerful when we come together is because we lead from our heart yes. and when you do that you can't go wrong Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we all experienced in that, in that reunion was we all came with our hearts wide open. We didn't know what to expect. We didn't have to perform. We didn't have to put on fancy clothes and wear makeup. We came as ourselves. And that's when it really became powerful,
0: you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's the secret sauce too behind, uh, women collaborating, right, is when you take that nature or that, that it's not even nature. I don't think it is within our nature to constantly want to be compared. <laughs> we don't want that. We, no. That, that has been, that has been amassed in the behavior of women, for too long, far too long. Mm-hmm. And just by the inherent nature of, of what we experienced in competition, it's hard. it was hard to let that go, right? It was hard from year to year when you return as a former to the pageant to let mm-hmm. go of the need to still be in competition. It doesn't matter. It's like the Hunger Games. Oh, my gosh. You're... <laughs> Related so much to those books, (laughs) to those characters, (laughs) because I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is forever. We're going to be embattling forever." But that in that moment, though, we were not, and it was incredibly beautiful. We were, we were mothers, we were teachers, we were various creatives in various corners of the creative industry we were hurting, we were healing, we were loving, we were at at different points in our uh, maturity as well. Different places throughout the United States, if we're talking geographically too, but suddenly we are together, we are equal and we are whole. Mm -hmm. And that feels like a formula for success. It was in those precious hours, where apart from moving to the kitchen to enjoy Laura's generously provided catered meals, we didn't dare budge from the riveting group conversation, that I realized the profound and deeply intrinsic value of sharing our stories, vitally important stories that spanned beyond the experience of Miss America into the core heartache and holiness of being a woman in a job meant to uplift other women. That reunion was banked away as a core memory for me, and it is part of the bedrock of my desire for this podcast to help women, and truly everyone, to feel seen in their pursuit of a creative life. The more we can link our stories, the greater chance we have of accelerating beneficial impact, just as what was attributed to Francesca Christine And Magdalena. Thank you for joining me for this first episode. I can't wait to share more stories throughout this first season. If you're intrigued by what you've heard, I would genuinely love for you to subscribe and share. The music you heard throughout the episode were excerpts of a 2017 recording of Francesca Caccini's La Liberazione di Ruggiero dal Solo Dal Cina, performed by Alabastrina. I'm immensely grateful to have pulled from the extensive research by Suzanne Cusick and Dr. Anna Beer for today's episode. You can find more about their research in the show notes. My thanks to dear friend and Miss America sister, Laura Kepler, for reminiscing about our 2015 reunion. Watch for our full interview to be posted on Virtuosa Society's social channels, too. This episode is a Virtuosa Society production produced by me, Katie Harmon, with audio engineering by Will Kauser. Title Music by Anna Lundström.